0: Good morning, everyone. We're getting our Lord's Day started and i um, excited to do that. And uh, I, I saw a number of you at uh, the memorial for Aaron DeVries yesterday. And that was, a, that was a joy to me to see you there and see you supporting their family as well. So in the moment, we'll pray. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going through 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And 1st and 2nd Chronicles uh, is not overly complex, and so we actually may come up a little short on time, which is good. If we do, then uh, we'll just have a Q&A or a discussion, or you can just leave, I guess, whatever you want to do. <clears throat> but uh, I, I always enjoy times of discussion and Q&A. So let's pray, and then we'll get going on First and Second Chronicles. Our Father, how good it is to pause our lives every single week and to just make this the Lord's day the day that you have set aside for us, Lord. And and while we're understanding that we're not under a Sabbath law, as, as it were, yet the church for centuries and centuries has set aside the Lord's day to be our Sabbath, not to perform some sort of legalistic obligation, but to enjoy the principle of stopping, to rest in the Lord, to learn of you, to be with your people, to fellowship with one another. And so I pray for this Lord's Day in our little body here, I pray that it would be a blessing. I pray that it would fill our hearts with the knowledge of God, that it would push us to love Christ all the more, and that we would sense the power of the Spirit in our lives in a way that um, is, is fresh and new. Lord, thank you for the books we're going to look at this morning in First and Second Chronicles, and we pray that it would be pleasing to you as we learn of our great and mighty God. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So for anybody who's keeping track, this is module two, session four. And unlike the last session where we had to divide it in two, we'll probably be done with this one in 30 minutes. So, um, <clears throat> but there are a couple of big issues in here that I might get a little inspired on, so we'll see what happens. But, so let's just start with some of the basics on First and Second Chronicles. The Hebrew title is The Words of the Days. I like that title, but we stick with Chronicles. Um, Interestingly enough, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the title is The Things Omitted. Uh, So it's sort of like an appendix, as it were. 55% of the book of Chronicles is found nowhere else in the Old Testament. So while we understand that Chronicles, in many ways... Um, parallels Second Samuel and first and second kings there is there is more new material than there is repeated material, but we 'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, the author is God, God, and an unknown man. I, you know the when I was younger in the faith, I used to get really, really obsessed with trying to figure out who authors of unknown authored books were in the Bible, and it took me a while to sort of determine that. If 2,000 years of scholarship hasn't figured out who the author of Hebrews is, I probably wasn't going to figure it out when I was 19. Um, if, if God doesn't want us to know who the author is, then there's a reason for that, and we'll leave it at that. But the author is clearly God, and when we talked about bibliology, we understand that the Holy Spirit is the one who, who has inspired these texts and um, shown to his people all throughout history that these are inspired texts. The dates of the event in Chronicles... It is these two books, and we'll put them together because it, it would be uh, cr- just Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible. We'll put them together, but this is the most inclusive of all the Old Testament books. It goes from Adam all the way to the grandsons of Zerubbabel about 500 B.C. or so. So it's basically almost all of Old Testament history here covering thousands of years. And what are the parallels here? Well, First Chronicles basically parallels 2 Samuel and 2 Chronicles parallels 1 and 2 Kings. So it's useful to um, read them at, at a, at a, in close proximity to one another. So, historical and theological themes. We'll spend a bit of time on this. All Israel. Now, we have to make a note about this because in this particular case, in Chronicles, because of the, uh, the emphasis on David, in Chronicles, when the text says all Israel, most of the time is talking about the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, why would that be okay? Well, wait a minute. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. Remember, Israel isn't just the name of a country. Israel is a name of a people. And so um, in the estimation of First and Second Chronicles, the northern kingdom of Israel, they were the rogue Israelites. They were the ones who were off base. The Southern Kingdom is the true kingdom. Now there's two pieces of evidence to help us understand this. Here's rabbit trail number 1. I guess we'll just keep track of them. Two pieces of evidence to understand this. First of all, when the when the Southern Kingdom was uh was carried off by Babylon, they returned or their descendants returned. When the Northern Kingdom was carried off by Assyria, they didn't return. They were scattered to the ends of the earth and those who did return intermarried with the Syrians and with others uh, creating the group of people we know as Samaritans. And so in a real sense, um, the northern kingdom never became what it was. Second piece of evidence that the southern kingdom, it's okay to call it all of Israel. What was the capital of the southern kingdom? It was Jerusalem. And that has always been God's capital. Um, in fact, the the kings of the northern kingdom tried really hard to divert proper worship from Jerusalem to the north, and they even made golden calves to try and get people to to, to uh, feel like they were right at home in their sin up in the north. So, in other words, it's not a contradiction. Well, you don't read First and Second Chronicles and they say all Israel, but we know we're talking about Judah, and you don't say aha, they messed up. No. Um, To the writer of Chronicles, Israel was in the south. And so uh, that's important for us to understand. This is where, one more piece of evidence. uh, This is a third one. This is where the kingly line of David is. So let me put it this way. If you don't have a Davidic king, you don't have Israel. So you could have all the kings you want in the north, and if you read about all the kings of of the north, you find that they are just terrible. They get worse and worse and worse. The kings of the south, generally speaking, a lot better. Why? Because God is with them, and they are descendants of David. So when they say all Israel, but it's only the south, that's okay, because the south came back, and uh, Jerusalem is there, and this is where the Davidic kings are. So it's a good lesson for us Um, The Israel is where God says it's going to be. It's where a Davidic king will be and it's where Jerusalem is pretty good Little lesson in eschatology as well, by the way in the future Israel will be where a Davidic king is where Jerusalem is So it's the same very consistent theology from our God Then you have the theme of the temple You have the temple is is big in here. You have the ark of the covenant And just to be clear about this, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, I can't ever remember when and what venue I've talked about this, but the Ark of the Covenant is God's throne on earth. That's the whole purpose of the Ark. Now, it serves other purposes as well. It happens to carry some important things like the law of God and the the staff of of Moses or Aaron that budded um, and so forth. uh, And the manna, it used to carry that. But it serves primarily the purpose of being the throne of God on earth. That's why it was kept in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, which is the throne room of God on earth. So just to be very clear, Chronicles talks a lot about kings and the Ark of the Covenant is prominent because it is the throne of the true king, God. And then, of course, because the temple is highly prominent here, you have the priests. They're talked about a couple of dozen times. You have the Levites. They're talked about a couple of dozen times. Let me give you, somebody asked me this question the other day, and I never know when I've said what when. Somebody asked me, well, what's the difference between the priests and the Levites? So let's talk about that for a minute. This would be rabbit trail number two. Does everybody know the difference between elders and deacons? Elders are the spiritual leaders of the church. Deacons are the servants who do the bidding of the elders to serve the rest of the body. Same thing, priests and Levites. Now, slight difference here. There's a a family connection. All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. So in other words, what did the Levites do primarily? Well, if you read the beginning uh, chapters of the book of Numbers, most of the Levites were the manual labor of the church. The Levites were the uh, the deacons over facilities. One third of them carried the structure, another third of them carried the uh, carried the the coverings, and another third of them provided guard duty. They were the temple guard, and pretty serious temple guard. Somebody tried to get in at the wrong time, the Levites would kill them. So. Um, the Levites were kind of the deacons, the servants in the church who did the did the work of keeping the ministry going. The priests were the ones who were the the, the ones who spoke to the people on God's behalf and spoke to God on the people's behalf. So it, it's a it's not an exact parallel, but it's something that we kind of understand because God kept the same sort of structure in the church with elders and deacons. So that's the difference between priests and Levites. So why does God grant David success in everything that he does? And this is still under the temple. The reason God granted David success was to prepare Israel for the building of the temple. And you recall that David intended to build the temple of God. This is You have to understand this is a big deal. For hundreds of years, the temple has been a tent. And so to finally have a king to say, we're planting our flag, we're going to build a permanent temple throne room of god on earth that was a big deal but you remember what what god said to david you're not going to do it your son will do it so what did david do we see this in chronicles and in uh, samuel as well what david did was he gathered all the materials he gave extensively of his own, uh, from his own treasury. And there have been calculations that that would have been uh, in the millions or billions of dollars because he was extremely wealthy by the end of his reign um, because everywhere he conquered, he took all the money. So it was, it was uh, an obvious thing. But he did everything he could except actually build the temple. And by the way, one of the things he did is he got the right man in the throne. He had a lot of sons and he got the right one there and that was Solomon. So, you have the temple, and then you have the theme of the davidic dynasty, and we 've already alluded to this as you read through Samuel, you read through uh, the samuel 's account of David, you get a much more colorful, spicy view of David because all of his sin is just out there for us to see. You see his adultery, you see his murder, you see so many of his failings. But 1 Chronicles is sort of a contrast. 1 Chronicles is very much a sanitized version of David. And it's not a spin on David. All it is is simply leaving out most of the sordid details about David's life. And one theologian has said, and I agree with this, that 1 Chronicles is God's view of David. And that's so important for us because um, that's similar to us, that because of the grace of Christ, if if God were to write the story and publish it of every sordid detail of your life, you would not want, that would be the unauthorized biography, right? But the story he's written of your life is one that includes you being made in the image of God, you being cleansed by the blood of Christ, you being imputed the very righteousness of Christ and promised that someday when you see Christ, you will you will be like him. So, First Chronicles is sort of God's view of David, the view that God had of what 1 Samuel 13, 14 calls a man after God's own heart. The focus here is not on the divided kingdom. There's not a lot of mention of that, and that's a, you know, a horrible thing, but it's on the Davidic kings. Um, <clears throat> I'll give you a good example. At our celebration banquet, With the exception of this year, we usually try not to name any disappointments, but we kind of had to tell you this time around. Um, But we we don't use our celebration banquet to to enumerate all the challenges and difficulties and, and problems we've had over the past year. The celebration banquet isn't for that. There's a time and place for that. The celebration banquet is to say, look what God has done. And that's what Chronicles is. It is very much a look what God has done in our nation and particularly with the Davidic kings. Speaking of which, it brings us to um, some of the high points of Chronicles are the good kings of the south, and there's a lot of them. And I would encourage you sometime, I won't go through the details of each king, but I would encourage you, this would make a great little Bible study for a month, to just take um, a couple of days and read about each of these kings and make a list of the things that they did that were pleasing to the Lord. You have Asa, you have Jehoshaphat, one of my favorites, you have Joash, you have Amaziah, you have Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah. So a little note here that the prophet Isaiah served with four of these because he was around for a long time with Amaziah, with Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah. And then finally you have uh, Yahweh as the cause of all that happens. If you want to reinforce your own heart and even teach somebody else about the sovereignty of God. I think 1 Chronicles is a great place to go and I, I made you a little list here of some of the places where Yahweh is the cause of all that happens. And it looks like on the slide that the list is cut a little short. Um, there's two more verses. There's 2nd uh, Chronicles 20:29. 20, there's also 2nd Chronicles 20 or I'm sorry, 36:22. So 2nd Chronicles 20 29 and 36:22, but you almost you just do a quick reading of first and second chronicles and you'll see these let me just give you a few examples first chronicles 5 speaking of a battle for many fell because the war was of god and they lived in their place until the exile now you say well, wait a minute war is bad and god is good but this says the war was of god first of all we do not define the goodness of God. God defines the goodness of God and all that he does is good because he is inherently good. So if the war was of God, then it was a good war. How do you understand that? Because God is working out his purposes and he doesn't obligate himself to tell us the whole story. Have you ever gotten an email from God that says, just letting you know next week your life's gonna fall apart. Here are all the reasons why. No, your life just falls apart and he doesn't tell you why because the war was of God, and it was his purpose. 1 Chronicles eleven fourteen, But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and killed the Philistines, and the Lord saved them by a great victory. And so another victory in battle, and it comes from the Lord. First Chronicles eighteen six. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Now, why would, we, why would we say, well, that, that doesn't make sense? We would say that doesn't make sense because David, if you read uh, the, the, the account from Samuel, David wasn't the guy that we would choose to, necessarily to lead. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He went through some periods of, of just doing some really rotten things. And yet, the Lord gave victory to David. Why? Because it was God's will. And that was his purpose. And by the way, just so you know, uh, the faith of David far outweighs the faith that any of us have ever shown. Um, you read Psalm 51, you want to see what a truly repentant man disgusted with his own sin looks like. Psalm 51 is a beautiful picture. And then just one more example of Yahweh is the cause of all that happened. Second Chronicles twenty fifteen, And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Now, this is one time where God, as it were, sends an email to Jehoshaphat, says this battle you're about to fight, you're going to kill it. You're going to be fine because I'm already telling you what's going to happen. It's one thing to claim to be deity and say, do you see this great thing that happened already? I did that. It's quite another thing to say, you see this massive army that looks like they're going to decimate you. I'm going to defeat them. And that's what happens. This is why it's so glorious that the Lord Jesus Christ not only died and was raised from the dead, but he predicted at least three times that that was exactly what was going to happen. He said, how, who, and when? He gave all those details. And so it gives us great confidence that God is the cause of all that happens. Let me uh, take rabbit trail number three. What is the alternative? And you can give me your answers. What is the alternative to believing that God is not the cause of all that happens? What's the alternative? What 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 conclusions do you have to come to? No sovereignty. Chaos, what was the other word? No omniscience. So it means that God gets caught off guard sometimes. Say that again? Exactly. So um, let, let's talk about... These implications. I had lunch with a guy who said, I I believe in free will for salvation, but I also believe in the sovereignty of God. And I said, Well, how do you you understand that? Do you mean that God is sovereign over everything? Oh, absolutely. Except salvation? Uh, Well, right. So men are sovereign over salvation, but God is sovereign over everything. How do you do that? And I, I asked him, Can you draw me a picture of that? Like, here's a big circle. God is sovereign over everything. Where does the circle of of salvation go? Does it go outside the circle or inside the circle? And at that point, he said, Well, you're you're just getting into semantics. No, just put the circle where it goes. Show me. The implication of God not being in control of all things is that God is not able to control the things that we most count on. Now, think about this, for example. <clears throat> If we say, well, God causes good and allows bad, oh, that sounds really righteous, doesn't it? But now um, that word allows becomes very difficult for us because now that puts God in the position of doing something that is evil. Why would God allow something bad? I'd rather say he did something that in our eyes appears to be unintelligible, that we don't understand. This was a huge question on September 12th, 2001. Why did God let and allow all those people to die in the Twin Towers? And that was always the phrase, why did God allow it? You see how you're already putting God in the position of of defending actions that we judge to be wicked? But when we take, for example, Lamentations 3, 37 and 38, that says everything that happens, whether good or bad, comes from the mouth of God. It doesn't mean whether good or sinful, necessarily. God doesn't sin. But that's a much safer place to be because if you say God causes good and allows bad, that implies, A, that he's maybe doing something immoral, and it also implies, B, that he allows the bad because he couldn't stop it. So you begin to go down these difficult trails of diminishing God. And here's a simple question to ask theologically. When you're faced with two potential views of God, you always ask this question. Which one gives God more glory? Which one elevates God the most? And generally speaking, that will be the correct view. So to say that God is not the cause of all that happens, we have serious implications uh, to that. How about this? Uh, Hebrews one says that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself upholds the all things by the word of His power. Okay, what are all things? It is a fabulous word in Greek. It's very complex. It means everything, events, atoms, cells, thoughts, anything and everything is upheld by Christ. And so, what are the implications if just point fifty zeros and one? thing of all things are not upheld by Christ what if there's one planet now put it this way what if there's one asteroid out in the universe somewhere that is not under the sovereign control of God I'm going to have a telescope pointed at that thing all the time because Murphy's law is that it's going to hit the earth right so to say that God causes things that are good but allows things that are bad that is a human invention that is not a biblical doctrine um I know it gives us comfort, and and I understand that. But I would rather put it this way. If I'm a child, I'd rather know that it's my father giving me a spanking, not that he allowed some stranger down the street to spank me. I would much rather know it's it's coming from him. And uh, I, I think that this understanding of the sovereignty of God, if you will elevate your belief in the sovereignty of God, that he controls all things at all times, That's where our safety, that's where our comfort, that's where our joy comes from. Because nothing's outside his purview. And then we get into these silly questions. Well, but did I make a real choice when I decided to have eggs instead of pancakes for breakfast this morning? Was that a real choice? Absolutely. Did God cause it? Absolutely. Wait a minute, how can it be both? I don't know, but it is. And people say, well, I don't want to be a robot. Has anybody ever known a Christian that actually believes they're a robot? That, you know, look, I, I, I was driving by the liquor store and I just went in and I bought three bottles and I got plastered. But hey, God caused that. I'm a robot. Has any Christian ever said that? No. no the only people who say that are unbelievers. God caused me to sin. So um, if you find yourself struggling with those kind of philosophical questions, don't. Just believe that God is sovereign, that he's in total control and, and there's such joy in this absolute joy well what was the purpose of Chronicles and this is one of my favorite purpose statements of all the Old Testament just because I'm kind of a Israel and David buff I guess in showing Yahweh's faithfulness to the house of David and the temple in Israel's history Israel was encouraged to hope that the son of David will come and build his temple one more time In showing Yahweh's faithfulness to the house of David and the temple in Israel's history, Israel was encouraged to hope that the son of David will come and build his temple. Why is this important? When was Chronicles written? Well, it goes all the way to the time after the exile. So it's written um, after the exile when the Israelites that were left were like, we don't have a temple, we don't have a city, we don't even have a country. And yet they're given Chronicles and they see wow, there's a king named David who builds a temple or he gathers all of the the materials at least for it. So this isn't just a dry recording of history. This is written with a purpose. It emphasizes the success of the Davidic line of kings. And it shows that God is faithful to Israel in the house of David. And this is very much a past, present, future idea that by showing God's work in the past, the author encourages the present audience to hope and faith the God would be as faithful in the future when who comes? The ultimate David, the son of David, Jesus Christ. Here's a good verse to understand all of Chronicles. First Chronicles 17, 11. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, your seed, singular, after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. That is the ultimate coming king. So that's the purpose of Chronicles. So Chronicles is very messianic. You can read it that way very easily, particularly with our understanding from the New Testament. Literary structure. It's all about the kings of David. It's all about David. You have the royal line of David in 1 Chronicles 1 through 9. And and that's a good title. This isn't the sinful line of David. This isn't the, the darker side of David. This is the royal line of David. This is how God views David. And then you have the righteous reign of David, 1 Chronicles 10 through 29. You see the things that he does that demonstrate his wisdom and his, his confidence in the Lord. And then, of course, it moves on to his son, to the reign of Solomon, 2 Chronicles 1 through 9. And then the reign of Judah's kings, 10 through 36. And, of course, it's after Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was in office for only two years that the kingdom split, but you don't see much mention of that. Remember, the whole focus here is on the line of David and the kingdom splitting is really almost just seen as an incidental event. The focus is on Jerusalem, on David, on the southern kingdom. Now, it does have a couple of interesting interpretive issues. One or two of them we've talked about already just because we've gone through it in, uh, in the other books. I guess we don't have a slide for this. Do we? We don't. Okay, well, I hope you can take good notes. Here they are. There's a couple of variants between uh, variations between Chronicles and then Samuel and Kings. And I'll give you one example. And this doesn't diminish our confidence in the Bible at all. But the first example is the question, who did Elhanan kill? Elhanan, E L H A N A N. In 1st Chronicles 20 verse 5, that's a good reference to note, 1st Chronicles 20 verse 5. There was war again with the Philistines and Elhanan, the son of Jair, struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite. We all know who Goliath was, right? And so apparently now we know who killed his brother. It was a guy named Elhanan. But in 2 Samuel 21:19, in the parallel passage, there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jair, the Bethlehemite, Struck down Goliath the Gittite. Now that says Elhanan killed Goliath. So how do you deal with that? Well, this is the the art and the science of textual criticism. And that doesn't mean to say I, I don't like the Bible. Textual criticism is the taking of every known text, original language text that we have, and comparing them to find the best reading. And trust me, there are groups of godly nerds that over the centuries, this is all they do. They, some of them you know, probably don't have any social skills and they wouldn't be the guy you want preaching from the pulpit. But they'll sit and they'll read these texts and understand. You have to understand there are, there are books and libraries written on how to do textual criticism. And they have this whole set of criteria that they go through. Now, I'll just give you a couple of examples. Understanding copyist errors. What, what the most common copyist errors are. What are we likely to do? Have you, ever, uh, and have you ever been handwriting or even typing something and type the same word twice in a row? You know, we all do that. Or how about this one? Leave a word out. And in your brain, you saw it go on the screen and then you go back and read it and go, where'd that word go? I remember typing it. So they, they, they look at copyist errors. They also look at um, uh, phonological errors, hearing errors, So in other words, a lot of scripture was copied because there was one guy reading it slowly while a bunch of you are out there copying it and they heard something wrong. For example, in Greek, the word for rope and camel sound almost identical. And so they might make an error there and nobody nobody caught it. There's another whole uh, idea and that is when you have two different readings, generally speaking, you pick the most complicated one. Why is that? Well, you pick the complicated one because copyists on occasion tended to try to help out the text and simplify it. And so if you have one that seems simplified and one that seems more complex, then generally you're going to pick the more complex one. Now, it's not a total rule because you have to put all of these criteria together and, and it's quite an art and quite a science. Well, how do we explain the fact that in First Chronicles 20... Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite struck down. Uh, I'm sorry, Lami uh, was struck down by, by El Hanan and Lami was the brother of Goliath. And in 2 Samuel 21, uh, El Hanan is the one who killed Goliath. How do you explain that? Well, this is very simple. It's a copyist error and he left out a clause. It should have been El Hanan, the son of Jair, the Bethlehemite struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath. But he just says he struck down Goliath. Now, that one's an easy one. Why is that one easy? Because 2 Samuel uh, tells us that, uh, that uh, David killed Goliath. I'm sorry, 1 Samuel does. We already know that. So that was a, a really easy one. But the ones that aren't so easy, there are always solutions. And just in case some of you are going, wait a minute, is my, is my English Bible filled with errors? No, it's not. There are thousands of places of potential discrepancies about 95% of them consist of things like this. Is it supposed to be the Lord Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ our Lord? It makes no difference whatsoever. The other maybe 5%, and I'm using very broad numbers here, none of them have any uh, bearing on major theological issues whatsoever, and every one of them have potential solutions to them. So uh, your Bible is the most accurately reproduced piece of ancient literature in the history of mankind um bibliologists have put our english bibles and by the way this is a this is a stat from 30 years ago and so it's going to be even better now they put our english bible at somewhere in in the vicinity of 99.67 or 8 percent accurate Now you say, wait a minute, I want it to be 100% accurate. Well, the second, the one that comes in second are all the works of Homer, um, which are said to be 95% accurate. We only have uh, a few copies of of the original copies, rather, of the works of Homer. We have thousands of copies of the New Testament. Thousands of copies. I, I don't mean copies you buy in the bookstore. I mean copies that were handwritten hundreds or thousands of years ago. So, The evidence is over overwhelming. So uh, and any good English Bible, all of yours will do this. If there is a potential textual issue, it'll have a little asterisk and you'll have a little footnote in the margin and not one of those will radically alter the meaning of the text, none of them. So what does that mean? It means that you have in your hand, is it an inspired text? Well, it has what we would call derived inspiration that as Inspire, as accurate as the copy is, that's how inspired it is. Now, there's a couple of major places we might have a, a, a larger difficulty with. The end of Mark 16, Mark 16 is a major issue. I preached a whole sermon on that. Uh, the beginning of John chapter eight, uh, Jesus riding in the, in the dirt with the woman there. That was an apostolic tradition that every English Bible still includes because they believe it actually happened. But it's not part of the original text. So you have a couple like that. So, when you see variations, because our Bible is filled with parallel accounts, right? You have the Chronicles paralleling Samuel and Kings, you have the four Gospels paralleling one another. When you see something that seems to be a variation, trust the Lord that there is always an explanation and there's a reason for those variations at times. And so, they're not meant to just be copies of one another. Uh, that great Bible scholar, Bill Maher, um, he, he says that uh, well, the Bible can't be true because Genesis 1 and 2 just repeats the same thing over again. Creation. Well, first of all, there's, there, there are no uh, discrepancies between those two accounts. But any basic theologian understands that Genesis 1 is the account of creation from the view of God. Genesis 2 is the account of creation from the view of man. And you put the two together and you get a complete total account from both sides. So, um, have confidence in your Bible. There's always a solution. Now, this is one we've talked about. Oh, no slide. This is the second one. Who told David to take a census? Who told David to take a census? First Chronicles 21.1 says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So 1 Chronicles says Satan did. 2 Samuel 24.1, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he the Lord incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. Is that a contradiction in scripture? No, it's actually a great theological favor that God has done for us because he just let us have a peek into the sovereignty of God and how God, who cannot sin and has no sin and will never touch anything evil, how God can cause things for his own good that seem to be wrong or evil, and yet he never touches it. How does he do that? It is through Satan. Now, some have said, well, that means Satan, that God is causing evil. No, I I would not go that far ever. We see the Lord's will was to judge Israel. This wasn't just, and if you remember, we, I, I think I preached a whole sermon on this because the angel of the Lord is the one bringing the judgment. But the Lord's will was to judge Israel because Israel had become prideful. David becomes sort of the representation of Israel. And so God is going to provide an opportunity for him to, to judge Israel. And ultimately that will end up in the death of 70,000 men. And so how does God provide the opportunity to judge Israel? He incites David through Satan, to pridefully go take a census and say, look how big my kingdom is. And then God judges him for it. You can do one of two things with that. You can either fight back against God or you can let your jaw drop to the ground and say our God is bigger and more powerful than I ever imagined. But in case you think, well, that sounds really, really confusing, let me help your confusion. In the Hebrew Bible, Chronicles is the last book it's the last one. It's in different order than ours Ours is. And in the Hebrew Bible, is there a book in our Bible, which would now have to come before Chronicles, um, in the Hebrew Bible, is there a book in the Old Testament that demonstrates God and Satan interacting, God saying, you may do A, B, and C, you may not do X, Y, and Z, and you're going to do everything I say because I have purposes and from the human standpoint, it looks like that it looks like God is the one doing the wickedness, but actually it's Satan. Is there a book? Job. The Hebrew, the Jew, reading through or hearing the Old Testament read, has already learned about Job before they ever get to Chronicles and to Samuel. They already know that God uses Satan for his own purposes. I don't know for sure, but I I wonder how many times throughout history Satan has said, he got me again. Every time Satan thinks that he's doing something to get God, it turns out God was just using him all along. One more interpretive issue. This is just my own pet issue. To whom is Second Chronicles seven fourteen referring? If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Until I was 18 years old, I thought that referred to the United States of America because that's what I've been told every July 4th. All right, on July 4th, you, you preach 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. I even read an article that said that's the best text to preach. If the United States of America holistically turns to god and there's a great revival it's not because we claimed second chronicles seven fourteen. it's because god was gracious to a nation that has uh, compared to the rest of the nations of the world we have like zero history like we're a blip on the radar right now so anybody thinks we're god's chosen nation uh, i I'm, I'm not going to go there uh, i'd rather be living in israel to be honest with you um who is that that is israel And it is an absolute mistake and it's a theological fallacy to just apply this to whatever country you're in. Um, There are countries defined by God in Scripture and they're defined in Genesis 10. And if we're not living in one of those, I don't make any guarantees that God will continue those on into the millennial kingdom and beyond. So will there be an America? I hope so. I love our country. It is the greatest country on earth in terms of freedom or used to be. But no... We don't want to read ourselves in the Second Chronicles 7:14. I heard an entire sermon through the book of Habakkuk that it was all about America um, once, and I had literally had to get up and leave. It was just so disgusting, it's so self-centered. Um, so no, if it's referring to Israel, it's referring to Israel. Well, we actually have a little time to, to chat a bit. If you have questions about Chronicles or about um, anything else, I'd love to take this chance to just interact with you a little bit. Right. right but satan does it all the time yeah. yes sure um so the the question is uh book of james chapter one says that god tempts no man first of all we always take scripture at face value if it says that god tempts no one then then we believe that and and if somebody says but i feel like he is well, whether your feelings have to do with it? The Bible says God tempts no man. <clears throat> um, sometimes, and I have run across this, I don't know if this is what you're referring to in particular, sometimes that conversation is in the context of um, I did a bad thing or I keep doing bad things and wanting to blame Satan for that. Can I tell you this? You don't need Satan's help. You can sin all by yourself. You're perfectly capable of doing that, and if Satan is personally—he's not omniscient, he's not omnipresent, he's not all-knowing. Um, if Satan knows your name and he's coming after you personally, um, that means you're doing something pretty great for the kingdom. Uh, he probably doesn't—he's—he's—he's he's, he's sending a you know fifth-round re- reject you know from his demons with a guy with an you know overbite and a limp and just horrible you know. Well, you're you're okay. You go after this guy because he's not important. Okay? But the first thing is, this is, is very tempting, speaking of temptation, to not believe truth. Well, it feels, wait a minute. It says God tempts no one. Do you believe that? Yes, I believe that. Okay? Then what are the possible causes of this hardship in your life? Well, first possible cause, the only possible cause, is God oh, does that mean I'm not responsible for the sin that I'm doing? No, God is allowing that, not in the sense of that he's passively uh, not able to control it, but he is using it for for your own good. Why would God put you in a position where he knows you're going to sin? Why would he do that? He's not tempting you. You don't need God's help. You you can be tempted all by yourself, but why why would he do that? And we begin to run out of vocabulary. I even want to say, why would he allow that, right? We run, why would he allow that? Why would he do that? What does Hebrews 12 say that he does with those that he loves? He disciplines them. How many of you here would say that your failures have been some of the greatest times of growing in Christ ever? I think we all would say that, right? So um, I don't deny that there's a tension Absolutely, but you just have to say, this is one of those issues where you, you can't, I don't like it when theologians try to boil truths down to one statement. This is where you get ridiculous things like the church is Israel. Now, how about the how about just a list? God tempts no one. God causes all things. God causes all things for his glory. God causes all things for his glory and for our good. And God works together all things for good to those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Those are all true. So pray those truths and quit sinning. Well, what if God is causing it? No, God tempts no one. Well, what if God is allowing me to be in this position where I could be sinning? Then do better and show him he doesn't have to do that anymore. My experience has been, not that we judge lives by experience, but it is a reasonable thing to look in the mirror on occasion. My experience has been that when I fail in a particular uh, challenge, God just brings it back over and over and over again. So I want to succeed. I want to I want to handle it in a way that's pleasing to him. Perhaps he'll be merciful and not bring that particular challenge around again. But Nate, I think the best answer to that is you just make a list of the facts. God tempts no one. God causes all things. He causes all things for his glory. He causes all things for his glory and for our good. And he causes all all of those things to eventually end up um what's the end of all things that he will wipe every tear from our eyes and we will look back over the course of our history over the course of all of history with our jaws to the ground going oh what does the end of romans 11 say that the the mighty wisdom of god how wise he is and i believe that we would look back over the worst parts of our lives, and if we knew why God was doing that, we would say, God, if I had it to do over again, I would have you do exactly the same thing over again. So if we had a perfect answer for that, Nate, then we wouldn't be walking by what? By faith. So it is that we trust the Lord. And I've seen this in our church. I am so pleased to be here. Um, I've visited with people who are dying with people whose lives are literally coming apart. And I have seen the smiles on their face that God is sovereign. And it's not a motto. It's not a, it's not a slogan. It's what I really believe in my heart. This was his plan. And why would I want anything else other than his plan? So, great question. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay, this is a this is a great point that Furman makes about uh temptation. First Corinthians ten thirteen, uh no temptation that sees you except what is common to man, and God is faithful that when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can get out of it. That's the Steve Swartz transliteration. I can't remember the exact verse. So, do you know how encouraging that is? Every moment you're tempted, you're about to you know, your your uh your spouse says something snotty to you and you You're like, oh yeah, Uh, okay. At that moment, there is a way out. What is the way out? I'm so glad God is broad with that um, because the way out might be your right hand. Uh. (laughs) There is always a way out. What does that mean? It means that when you're thinking about the ways that you fail and that you fall, there's no excuse to say, well, I was trapped. No, you weren't. There's always a way out. It might be something very, very uh, seemingly spiritual. It might be that I'm going to go read Chronicles in Hebrew until I've, this temptation passes. It might be something super spiritual like that. It might be I'm going to go for a walk and I'm going to pray. It might be that I am going to recite the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. What's the last one? Self control. I can control this. I can I can decide to do the right thing because I have the Spirit of God. I'm just going to decide. You know, um, I've worked with a lot of people who deal with various types of temptation and when I've seen the biggest breakthroughs, I think it's historically for me and my experience has been that there's just a very simple realization that I have the Spirit of God. If I have the Spirit of God, I have the fruit of the Spirit. If I have the fruit of the Spirit, I have self-control. If I have self-control, I can just say no. And it, it, it very much ceases to be this giant battle. It's just more of a, it's not that I'm on the field of battle. It's just I stepped off the field. I'm not gonna fight. There is no fight. I've already won. I have the Holy Spirit. And I've seen radical transformations in people's lives. When they come to that understanding, I have the Spirit of God. Just You know, wh- what did they say in the 80s? Just say no. Just say no. That is a, that is a beautiful thing. And by the way, that means that it takes away excuses when you, when you fail too. When you say something terribly rude and sinful to your spouse or to somebody else and they call you on it, you don't say, well, you made me mad. No, I, I could have just said, no, I, I shouldn't say that. Um, I could have said, uh, as Paul says in First Corinthians 6, why not be defrauded? Why not be ripped off? Why not just take it? Why not? So um, that's a very good point, and thank you for that we've had uh We've had uh, from the sheep over here. How about the other sheep? You thought I was going to say goats, but uh any other questions? Anything else? I hear somebody over here. All right. welcome back. Anybody over here? Hi, Darla. The armor, oh well, in all of our uh, the armor of God in Ephesians six, in all of our daily dealings and our understanding that we 're here not just to defend ourselves spiritually but to do great things spiritually for the Lord um, he yes, we have the spirit of God, but that 's just that 's just the beginning, so we have the the breastplate of righteousness, we have the sword of the spirit, we have the belt of truth, um, we have the the shoes of the gospel of peace, so um, There's always a a lot of books have been written about how do you put on the armor of God? All of those have to do with what you believe. They all have to do with what you what you believe and then how it works out in, in what you do. The breastplate of righteousness has to do with the fact that I believe that as a Christian, I should be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ in everything. And if I'm obedient, that is a shield against wickedness. It's a shield against evil. Because I'm going to, I'm not going to leave myself open to stupid attacks that I didn't have to. So I, that's the biggest piece of armor uh, in terms of square footage is this big giant shield. Um, I, I've done enough counseling. There's, there's only two causes for pain in the Christian's life: others or yourself. That's it. Sometimes the pain is very legitimate. It is. Uh, the pain that the DeVries family is experiencing right now, the the, the horrible loss of of a daughter at a seemingly un, untimely time. By the way, I want to give you testimony. That whole family believes with all of their heart in the sovereignty of God, and they are on solid ground. It is amazing to see. But the other one is, well, other people are causing me pain, okay? Um, well, that's, no, that's the first one. The other one is, uh, well, I'm causing myself pain. I don't know how many times... That um, somebody visits with me and says, I'm just, you know, I, I don't have any joy. I don't, I don't, I even want to live sometimes. And Sometimes that happens for reasons we can't control. And we understand that. But I've lost track of how many times I just ask simple questions. When was the last time you read your Bible? Ah, I'm too depressed to read my Bible. Well, it's like saying I'm starving to death and I'm too hungry to eat. Well, when's the last time you were, you know, I noticed that you're in church like twice a month. Why don't you be here eight times a month? I, I've noticed, you know, what's your prayer life like? Ah, oh, I just don't feel like praying. So, you're starving and you're thirsty and you're, you're emaciated spiritually, but you don't want to eat, you don't want to drink, you don't want to do all the things that, that you need to do. I, at that point, you, th- that's a person who wants a magic pill. You know, Steve, do your, do your pastoral dust thing. Do you have something you can kind of sprinkle on me? No. Joy is the product of obedience. And there's no such thing as a joyful disobedient Christian. Those two, they can't exist. So, good question. Let's do one more. Yeah, Furman, you get a double today. I don't know, I have here. Make, make it quick. We got one minute. I I love you, Furman. I love that you ask a question that's going to take half an hour to answer. The question is, what is David and Goliath really about? It is about the fact that God will bring a Davidic king to this earth and it will not be by the power of man. It is by the power of God. That a little kid with a slingshot is going to defeat the greatest warrior standing on planet earth. And David himself said it. You come to me with a sword and a spear. I come to you in the name of the Lord, our God. That's what it's about. That God will bring a Davidic king through his power, not through ours. There we go that short enough all right let's pray thank you lord for uh this time to just be together see these smiling faces here to anticipate the songs we're going to sing the prayers we're going to pray the word of god being opened how we love you and how we desire to demonstrate our love this day through our worship and our fellowship may you be with us shortly as we come before you in our more formal time to present ourselves to you as living sacrifices. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for the dialogue. I thoroughly enjoy that.